This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? We are continuing our read-through of the book of Genesis. In our last episode, we discussed how the famous words of Genesis 1-1 function as the title of Scripture, and not as the first words of a paragraph. This is important because everything that the text is building up to is directly in response to the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is the abstract of the biblical message, the Torah and Mashal that we are all submitting to. Join us as we continue our conversation from last week, digging deeper into the scriptural Hebrew in hopes to illuminate the story being told. Verse 3, we are introduced to two more very important words in Hebrew, the Hebrew word amar and the root hayah. I'll read verse 3 to you before I continue. It says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In the Hebrew, and said God, light exist, and light existed. We break it up in English, uh, make it a little bit more complicated than it actually is in the Hebrew. We add a little, a few more words to make it make sense to the English ear. But the word amar is literally just, it's God speaking. It's uh, the same word, uh, one of the words used when God addresses some of the prophets or the people or just when somebody speaks in, in the Old Testament, it's, it's that word amar. So God is just speaking, and reality is bending to his word. This is a theme, a concept that's going to continue uh, to show up. It goes on to say in verse 4, And God saw that the light was good, and separated the light from the darkness. This is a, this is a little bit of trouble we run into with the English uh, the idea that we get in English in verse 4 where God separates the light from the darkness is that there were these two things that existed, light and darkness, and God pulls light out of the darkness or something weird like that. In the Hebrew, it literally says, Vayivdil Elohim ben haor uvin hachoshek. So God is dividing. That's that Hebrew word, yivdil. It comes from the root yivdil. Uh, it, it's the same word used when God uh, distinguishes people or distinguishes somebody for a particular role. He is just separating them, dividing them. He is distinguishing between them. It's not separate like you are making two loaves of bread, so you separate the dough. No, he's distinguishing each as its own thing, preparing it for its own function, which we'll see in the next verse. 
God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So at the beginning of that verse, there's a little bit that I think it's, uh, it's important to unpack because the English doesn't get the idea across as well. We're introduced to, in the Hebrew, another very important word that will continue to come up thematically and with function. In this context, grammatically, it is vayikra. It comes from the root kara, which means to call. And that is not to call something or to name something in a cutesy sort of way. <laughs> it is to proclaim something as or to call someone to attention. So God here is not naming the light day. Here, God is calling for the light to be day. He is giving the light function. And this is uh, one of the first instances where we are seeing something given a purpose. It's given a role. It's given control. Very clear um, functionality. Here. Very, very clear functionality. So he's calling for the light to be day. And this is supported even in the Hebrew. It uses uh, the, the letter Lamed, uh, which is a preposition in this context. It is Laor, where the word by itself is Or. The preposition is to or for. So he's calling for the light to be day or to the light day. Yeah, be day, yeah. Be day. <laughs> yeah, he's saying it, light, you yeah. are day. Because like when he's, when he's saying, Vaikra Elohim Laor Yom, you know, when in English where we read it, and God called the light day. I mean, that's so weak. That's so weak. You know, it's it's in, in the Hebrew you get this idea that God is like pointing to this light and saying, "You will be day. That is your function now." And it reminds me a lot of when God changes people's names in the Bible, and and that'll be really important later on when we, when we start getting <laughs> introduced to like more relatable human characters. Um, but, uh, that's something to, to keep in mind, you know, that when God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, that has a load of meaning that has so much meaning. And it's not just God being cute, you know, and, and, and giving him like a longer name or whatever, you know, um, names are way more important in the Bible than they are in everyday life, you know? And, and I think, I think generally people know that, but like, it's, it's not just that their names have certain meanings either. It's that like their, their names oftentimes, pretty much all the time, I would say, control their functionality in the story. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and God calls for the darkness to be night and there was evening and morning the first day. Day one. <laughs> In verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. God says, let there be an expanse, and we have this phrase in English, and it was so. So he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters, and God made the expanse and separated, that's that word, he distinguished the waters that were under the expanse 
from the waters that were above the expanse. They're serving a function. He's separating, he's putting this expanse in the middle because he is taking control of this primordial, abysmal, ominous thing that life cannot come out of until he makes it so. And then it obeys because he is in control. So God made the expanse to hold back the waters above and below. Earlier we heard that he spoke this expanse into existence, and then he forms it so that he can take control of this dark, abysmal thing that are the waters that we were already introduced to. And then he calls the expanse and hear it, hear it in the Hebrew. He calls it Ha Shamayim. What does that sound like? Sounds like Mayim for the waters. And get this, the word Shamayim, it's made up. It's from an unused word. If you look in the lexicon, we don't know where it came from. It's from an unused word. So clearly the authors are trying to further illustrate uh, that God is making things functional. He's creating things for a specific purpose. Hashemayim is keeping the waters at bay, but not always. And so we see what this is doing, right? So I'm going to invite the listener, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure whoever's listening to this is familiar with like the story of the flood and all of that. Think about how this cosmology that the scriptures are describing right now, think about how that comes to play later on, right? So we can definitely see it with the story of the flood where we have, it literally talks about floodgates opening in the rakia, in the firmament, where like the, the firmament, basically the floodgates of the firmament, because the firmament's there to, to keep the waters at bay, it's open now. And so the waters can come through. And then it also talks about water coming up out of the ground. Now, obviously, these are not literal geological realities, which is why it's, it's always crazy to me that, that people try so hard to, to read modern science into the Bible like it makes any sense. It doesn't because the, the language isn't doing any of that. Again, this is, this is showing you a picture that God has these destructive forces at, at bay. That's all it means. That's all it means, that, that God has control over these destructive forces, so they're not going chaotic, run amok, whatever. They're not destroying everything in sight. God has them at bay so that life can prosper if his Torah is heeded, if his teaching is heeded. If it's not, then God has full rain to release them. That is all that any of this means. This does not mean that the Bible is archaic, as some might say, like the Bible has this outdated ancient cosmology and therefore uh, the Bible isn't uh, useful anymore. That's just as ridiculous as the other side that is trying to uh, make scientific apologetics for the Bible. You know, it just, it it doesn't work either way because that that's not what the Bible is doing either way, right? This is showing us how God's character works. And again, we see it at play with really the, the, the main one is, is, is the story of the flood where we can see the waters above and the waters below coming together to destroy the earth. It's a very important thing to keep in mind that this is all that it's 
saying. It's very simple, but it's complex. Once you shed some of the things that you've been taught about how to read the Bible, like it's history or, you know, whatever, you know, that, that tends to, to leave an impression in our minds that can dilute the way that we read and hear scripture, but we have to allow ourselves to do away with that, right? And, and start understanding what the Bible is actually saying in the Hebrew without all of these later theological formulas and everything coming into play. In verse 9, we hear that the waters under the firmament were the predominant force in that half of the expanse, not the earth as globe. Remember, if we consider verse 1 of Genesis as a title, earth, as we understand it, uh, the aretz, it is not formed yet. When we think of earth, we think of land. The land is not there yet. So God created the firmament. It exists to separate the waters and below the expanse, which will be the dwelling of humanity, the earth is not there yet. So God says for the waters to be gathered together. The word used for this is yikavu, which interestingly only occurs this once in the entire Bible. Anytime you come across a minute detail in scripture like this, that if you don't consider it, you're not really missing much. You can't just gloss over it and say, oh, I'm not missing much. Why is it there? If it only occurs in this uh, one instance, it must be important. And I'm not suggesting that we have all the answers to it, but it is important to look into. So it comes from the root kava, which means to wait. And that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in this context, uh, nor can one really see where gathered came from. If you look a little bit deeper into Strong's Concordance, it does indicate links to other Semitic roots that mean to bind together by twisting. So perhaps the authors were trying to get across this idea that when God speaks, these things that he's created bend to his will. Clearly we see that, but it is twisted into submission in order, in this context, for the dry land to appear. The waters are twisted into submission God is taking control, making it submit to his word, and then the dry land appears. There's a lot going on in Genesis 1-9, specifically in the Hebrew. And so I want to spend a little bit of time on some of the terminology and what it means for the Bible, specifically the Torah as a whole. Because I, I, I think that it, it offers us some clues into what the word Torah actually means. So I'm going to read a little bit in the Hebrew and, um, you know, it's, you know, I'm not asking you to, to hear and then understand exactly what I'm saying, but, but I just want you to listen intently and see if anything pops out at you. So, uh, this is Genesis 1, 9 in the Hebrew and it's Vayomer Elohim Ikavu Hamaim Mitahat Hashemaim al Mechim Echad Vaitera Habesha Vahihen. And so that last part, when it's talking about the dry land appearing, the word appear, it's it's using the word Vaitera. That sounds a lot like the word Torah. So is there a connection here? Well, I think that there is. 
So for one, the word Torah, which is where we get the word law from, that comes from a word that means to show. It can also mean to throw it, you know, so it, it has a lot of uh, a lot of interesting meanings, and it's a very important word in Scripture because not only is it the foundation of the word Torah, which is obviously an important word because that's, that's the law, that's the whole point of this whole thing. Um, it's also the word behind uh, the, the name Jerusalem, which in uh, Hebrew is Yerusalem, which has its own different functionalities, because depending on uh, what's going on with the people in Jerusalem, it's either the city that shows the peace or the city that throws away the peace. But what's really interesting here that's going on is that this is specifically talking about the appearance of the dry land. And that word appearance, the Torah, which is a little different in, 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 a, in a voweler sense than Torah, because it comes from the word for to see, ra'a. So it's like the dry land has been revealed. We can see it now. And so Ra'a and Yara are obviously related because one, one means uh, to see, which is Ra'a, and the other means to show, which is Yara. And so why am I bringing this up? Why, why am I drawing this conclusion? Well, when we think about the Torah as a whole, which again is, is the reason why we're here at this point, the, you know, Genesis is... Genesis is the introduction, if you will. It's the invitation to the law. And when we keep that in mind, we have to understand what it's doing. It's showing us how God operates in preparation for him giving the law in the book of Exodus, the next book of the Bible. And so that idea of being shown something with this instruction behind it. I mean, that is what Torah is all about. That is what Mashal is all about. You know, that is, that is what the Bible is doing for us. I mean, the law is appearing this early on, you know, because it's not just giving us a list of commandments like it's Hammurabi's code in that, you know, this is just the law and we have to follow it. No, it's giving us every angle, every possible way that we could possibly understand it from understanding it through specifically storytelling before it ever gives us a list of commandments, which is very powerful and it's very important because the Bible shows us the law before it reveals the writing of the law. And so that word Torah is very nuanced, right? Because it doesn't just mean law. Because when, when we just think of Torah and we just say, oh, that just, that means law in Hebrew, and we don't go any deeper than that, then what does that really do for us? Because the word law in English doesn't mean anything more to us than a set of rules, Right? There's nothing really deeper. I mean, you could look at the etymology of the English word law and try to find something, but generally in day-to-day -day use, we don't think of it that way. But Torah has a very 
nuanced meaning that would have been instantly recognizable by the hearers. And if we see its relation to revealing something, to seeing something, as almost like a response to being shown something, then that shows us what the Torah is really about, and that it's a revealing instruction, right? It reveals our sins, our iniquities, and we'll, again, we'll get to that in more detail as the Bible gets into more detail about what the law is. But I think that this usage of ra'ah, this early on in the scriptures, is important for us to spend a little bit of time with it, like I'm doing now, in order to set up what's going on with the law later. Because the original hearers, when they would have heard this, they would have, again, like we've already said in this podcast, they, they would have understood that innately, that the law is something that is instructive, and it's, 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 it's instructive by showing us something, and that it is revealing something to us, you know, more so than it's just a list of commandments. So that's why I'm, I'm making such a big deal about this, because it's, it's so foundational to the most important aspect of definitely the Old Testament, at the very least. Yeah, often when we think about the Torah uh, or the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, we kind of, we kind of mentally categorize this book, Genesis, uh, as different, as this sort of like maybe more entertaining fairy tale beginning to a very boring set of rules and history. That is not correct. Every tradition that subscribes to this text counts Genesis as the first book of the law. Those first five books start with Genesis. And if the Torah is a book of instructions, this first one, as we've continued uh, or repeatedly tried to emphasize, this first book is how to read the law. It is the authoritative word or instruction or Torah on how to read the Torah. If you get into the boring parts, the lists of rules, uh, and you read it without this character introduction of God, this understanding of God, this understanding of the fall of man and the curse of the ground and the repeated theme of God returning the earth to tohu vabohu to create a new creation and new opportunity for man to heed his word. If you don't have that, you're lost. Yeah, which is exactly why it's here. You know, um, yeah, the, the Torah has a very specific structure that if you dismantle that in any way, then it, it, completely, uh, it completely goes away from the entire point, you know. So we have to be thinking about this stuff right now. <laughs> yes. You know, because, because the original hearers would have been thinking about it right when they've heard it. And again, I, I, I want to stress this even more because we have to think about how even just these first few verses of the first chapter of Genesis, how it is inviting us to the Torah, and how are we receiving God's message and instruction thus far. We're seeing how he functionally 
operates in creation. Because as Rowdy said, as he acts in this creation account is how he behaves in the rest of the Bible. And again, this is another reminder that God holds the key to prosperity and destruction since he is the true Melech. Melech means king in Hebrew, but specifically it means the owner. That's the connotation it has. And he is the owner, the Melech, the king of all creation. And so this part of the Bible is unmistakably planting a seed of Torah, which is appropriate because next episode we'll be talking about how God creates life using the spreading of the seeds. And if we know our Bibles well, we know that the Bible calls the law itself life, Deuteronomy 32, 47. And when we think of God spreading the seed, I mean, what comes to mind, right? I think about the parable of the sower, and right? And what's the context of the parable of the sower? It's the, the spreading of the gospel. It's being, it's being, uh, it's, 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 it's a parable, a mashal, giving us an illustration of how to spread the gospel by a planter spreading his seed all over the ground, you know? So it's all there. It's all contained in this section of Scripture, which is why Torah is important to understand now, why Mashal is important to understand right now. Because the mashal is the mechanism, the vehicle for us understanding Torah, you know? And again, as Rowdy said in, in the intro episode when he was talking about how mashal has a meaning of parable, but it also has a meaning of ruling over something. You know, and, and we think about what that means in terms of us submitting to the story. I mean, it's so deep, no matter what angle you look at it. And so hopefully by this point, you can kind of understand or start to understand what we meant earlier in today's podcast. If you've made it this far, congratulations. Thank you very much. You can understand why we call Genesis 1-1 the title of Scripture. Because we see in that first verse God's character introduction, and his introduction is him giving functionality to the heavens and the earth, which is our reality. And so that's the thesis of the entire Bible right there, and we're seeing it play out. And we'll see it play out in our next episode. Yep. You read the title of scripture, Genesis 1-1, you've read the whole Bible. You read Genesis chapters 1 through 4, you've read the whole Bible. You read Genesis chapters 1 through 11, you've read the whole Bible. You read the Gospel of Matthew, you've read the whole Bible. It's repeated over and over and over again. It's boring. It's boring. Yeah. But in order to understand it, you have to study, you have to spend the time, and we're inviting you to do that with us. So thank you for listening. And we will see you next week. Like the tree which is planted by the streams of the waters of the